Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, July 13, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, welcome back. I don't think yesterday, the day before was the Josh show. Today, Josh behaved yesterday and kept his opinions <laughs> to himself. <laughs> I'm kidding. Josh, Josh and I are talking about, well, Josh Rev and I are talking about um, toward the end of the summer, not necessarily a segment. I don't know if we do special features. I mean, we do Weiner line and we do, you know, some of the embedded, we do, probably don't do as much of that as we, we, we do a lot of that. We just don't identify it as that. Is that fair? Sure. I mean, I think we yeah. organically and spontaneously do a lot of that, Yep. but, um, but Josh has a desire to one day be on this side of the microphone. Correct. Correct. And you got to get good at it. Oh, yeah. Or you can suck like me and uh, just have some home field advantages. <laughs> right. We're not setting a very good example, yeah, but okay. We're, we're setting a horrible <laughs> example. I mean, if you want to be good at this, Josh, discount everything we do here <laughs> and, and read a book. I mean, go, go to a class, understand. <laughs> and do the opposite. Yeah, understand intellectually um, how we need to do this. Okay. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is um, we've had several people, uh, several, a couple of people, uh, maybe several, sitting where Josh is today. And the majority of time when I went down one of these controversial roads, I could understand what Alec Walt thought, what uh, Randy Cato thought, what Freehold thought, you know, just their facial expressions, the, the, the nodding of the head, the, um, the, the level of engagement. Josh has been one I've not been able to figure out yet. Hmm. Uh, Ooh. Well, I mean, and that's, that's a good quality. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. Does Josh kind of sort of agree with what I just said, kind of sort of disagree uh, with what I've just said. Yes, uh, probably, <laughs> probably from one um, beginning of the sentence to the end of, uh, of that sentence. But, um, but, but Josh wants to be uh, an eventual host of a radio show, and he's got to learn how to express himself. I think he knows how to do that. He's just got to find a host willing to give him the opportunity <laughs> to do that. So we're going to give him some opportunities here. And, and full disclosure, uh, I told Rev, I think a couple of days ago, I said, Rev, I'm going to say something to Josh about finding a topic or subject that he thinks is interesting and, and bring it up during the course of the show. And we'll, you know, we'll debate, agree, disagree, um, probably a little of both, probably agree on some fronts and, and disagree on other fronts. But, um, I was thinking about Disney hired, you know, they are, uh, they extended the contract to Bob Iger. Uh, I think he's 72 now. He agreed to come and stay for two years. Come um, back. He, he, yeah. he was the kinda retired rock, CEO. Kind of rock the ship and get, yeah. it back, um, get the rudder back in the water. His um, replacement so did a horrible job by most people's but accounts. It, but it was hand-picked replacement. Right. I mean, it was his hand-picked. Okay, we give Rev a chance to talk about Disney. Here we go, John. Well, I'm just um, filling in the, the gaps here. M-O-U-S-E. A long way from that. Yeah. We've gone a long way from that big-eared mouse to where we are today. But one of the – I was reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday – about Iger handpicking uh, his replacement, and now he's back in the fold trying to right the ship. But he said in some of his comments that this is a difficult proposition, that Disney, uh, he doesn't say this, obviously, but he says Disney has probably taken on um, some controversial subjects that they would have been better off leaving alone. Hmm. Uh, now that's not, you know, he's got to be careful. He's a CEO and he yep. don't want to be critical of the board and, and whomever else in a, in a subordinate role to, to Bob Iger now has made some of these, some of these decisions. But, um, 
but I mean, you know, th- there is no talk radio show as big as Disney. I mean, there ain't many, many companies in the world as big as as big as Disney. But Disney made some, and I was thinking about this driving over this morning. Um, what's next? I mean, I, I'm always interested in what's next. What what is headed our way that most of us don't even see? Remember, Steve Jobs famously said. I mean, if you're somewhat of a student of business, Steve Jobs said the secret to be an uber wealthy, not wealthy, but uber wealthy, is invent something people don't even know they need yet. I mean, if you take an invention and you innovate, make it better, there's a pretty good chance you get wealthy, but not uber wealthy. I'm talking about stupid money. You know, just like uh, like Steve Jobs. Right. <laughs> like, there's like, your example. Like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. I mean, just stupid money. And he says, you know, people have taken pretty decent ideas or concepts, improved upon those ideas and concepts, and got wealthy. People that invent things that you don't even... I mean, remember the iPad, excuse me, the iPod? Remember um, Jobs walking out on the stage when Apple was a kind of a fledgling company? I mean, they they basically got rid of him because yep. of some of the uh, some of the issues and uh, some of the disagreements he had with the board. And uh, well, when he went at Publix, when he got stupid rich, but but the, the the Macintosh I think was the computer that Apple you know predicated its early success on. But along came the iPod, and you know you could store all these songs and you could put these headsets on and you could go jogging or running or. On whatever, whatever you chose to do, and you could have a uh, a catalog of all this music, and, and nobody knew they needed that. I mean, that was the Sony Walkman, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, didn't that kind of the? Um, I mean, you thought you were flying a spaceship if you strapped the Sony Walkman <laughs> on your side and put a set of headphones on. Um, I mean, you felt superior to your fellow to your fellow mankind. About the size of a what, Reb? About the size of a uh, a brick? No, nah, it's not as big as a brick. Uh, well, it, about the size of a cell phone. Yeah, about the size of a cell phone. <laughs> Today's cell phone. Today's cell phone, and all of a sudden, and you know, I mean, a hell of a cassette tape. So it had to be as big as a cassette tape. Yeah. You know, I mean, you think the size of a cassette yep. tape. They kept making them yep. a little bit a little smaller. Thick. Yeah, they were thicker. Yeah, and... a little bit smaller. And I mean, I had one. I, I remember saving my money. You know, back in the day, and um, and you know, trying to do a little exercise and having one on your side, and you know, you were better than everybody. You know, you you weren't a a normal man anymore. I mean, you know. <laughs> oh. you, you had this this Walkman on your side. You had this headset on, and it looked like a weirdo. I'm not weirdo. You're you're the peasant. You know, you 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 aspire to be where where I am one day. But but Bob Iger in his comments, and I read a lot of his comments because of of what we talked about a couple of days ago and yesterday. And Iger says that he's not sure we can get back to where we were, despite some of the challenges. Um, by the political involvement that Disney's former CEO and some of the leadership um, decided to, get, to, to to be involved in, and he really goes down to this. I mean, it's streaming, it's um, it's accessible information, twenty four seven. I was driving over this morning. Some of the red eye guys were talking about the best money they've spent is the YouTube upgrade that lets you avoid the ads. I mean, you pay a lot, like twelve ninety nine a month, and you get YouTube without any advertising. Oh. And both of those guys said they were very reluctant to pay the money to you know the twelve ninety nine to not have the bully ads. And um, I mean, I do a lot of YouTube because of the show we do and my interest in what's happening in the world around us. So, um, so Iger is um, what he basically said. Rev is you know we're as good as it is. I mean, we've always been better than nearly everybody in creative product. 
but we were competing with other legacy companies, Warner Brothers, uh, Paramount, uh, HBO. I mean, these companies would be similar to, we're bigger than they are and, and have been more successful than they've been. But he said, now you've got this decentralization that allows Josh at 25 years old to get his hands on a camera, a podcast studio. And he said the production quality is, I mean, they don't have the overhead. They don't have any of the normal expenses that a company like Disney would have. Um, and they're producing product that people are interested in, curious about. And the production quality, because of the, uh, he's talking about, you know, some of the, uh, I even said, some of the uh, some of the visuals or some of the visions that you see downloaded from a cell phone are as good as the cameras we had 15 years ago. And we had, you know, multi-billion dollar budgets on, on hardware and equipment and uh, he, he just he's, he's talking about how, how challenging it's going to be um, if Disney believes it had a certain share of the market in what what entertainment. I mean, wouldn't that be? I mean, Disney owns ABC, ABC owns ESPN, so they're in all sorts of of entertainment fronts. But um, I mean, he said that they're not finished laying off at ESPN, and all of this is is because there's just not as much demand for their content. I mean, streaming has changed. He he told, uh, and I've seen that you're a Braves fan. So, 10 minutes after an Atlanta Braves game, you can go on YouTube and watch a 12-minute summary of the Braves. Everything that happened in the game. Um, you don't have to sit there for three hours and 20 minutes and watch pitch by pitch. Now, you're a baseball guy, so that's fun for you. That's right. But, but there are a lot of people who say, man, I could do that or I could do this. So, so Iger talks about, he doesn't call the Braves out specifically, but he says, you know, there are these companies now that, you know, take the, the entire ball game, break it down into 12 minutes. And, and he's got people at Disney paying attention to the increase in views and clicks on those sites. I, I'm a Gamecock fan. Um, after every South Carolina football game, you can go back and download a summary of the game, a, a kind of a, uh, just a capsule of six, eight, 12, 10 minutes. It, it really does speak to the the nature of the human condition today in regards to instant gratification. Why would I watch three and a half hours of baseball when one minute after the game's over, there is a professionally produced high-quality summary, and, and I'm off doing something else. I mean, I check online what the score is of the game, but I don't have to watch in live, you know, every night Olsen hit a home run or Acuna make a great catch, or in my case, the Gamecock score, uh, give up a touchdown. Uh, but, but, <laughs> yeah, right. but, but, but you see where I'm headed. And, and Iger says that, um, that that's just a headwind that Disney is going to have a big, big problem um, dealing with. And I don't know if he's so, – some of these real bright CEOs, I've often believed one of the most um, important things a CEO can do is lower expectation – and over deliver instead of walking in the door and saying, there's a new sheriff in town, watch what we do. So, so he's, you know, kind of preparing the investors. I, I'm thinking of CNBC and Bloomberg when I'm here at Iger Talk. He's an old hand at this. So if you're someone who owns, you know, if you're a, a, um, a mutual fund manager, a fund manager, and you own a bunch of Disney stock, and, and Iger's basically saying, hey, I'm not promising you the world now. You know, I, this stock was, um, it's worth about half what it was in 2021. So in a couple of years, Disney has lost about half of its market valuation. Now, I mean, that, that isn't, you can say the company's worth less or worth half. Well, I mean, they've not sold anything that I know of. They're, they're making some cost 
cutting measures to, you know, get the budget back balanced, um, so to speak, or get the margins and profits back where investors are uh, inclined to make an investment. I mean, people, that's what a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, I think of people in my world that when you are an investor and you invest in Disney and Disney stock is, let's say, 100 bucks a share, and three years from now, Disney stock is 100 bucks a share, you're, you're starting to find another investment to make. Well, when you sell your Disney stock because it just didn't perform, the company takes a hit in market valuation. And that's that's what's happening here. People are, and Iger explains it, you know, you've got to create the perception that we're going to have, you know, a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of profitability to share with our investors. It's a publicly traded company. I mean, obviously he gets, I think he's getting a very performance-enhanced uh, pay for the next two years, which he agreed is, I think his, he can make up to 500% of his base salary. But now his base salary is not one of these $100 million, you know, I mean, he's ba- Iger's got his money. I mean, I'm sure he's doing oh, yeah. exceedingly well. And Disney lured him back and Disney said, hey, can we pay you, you know, 3 million bucks a year with the opportunity to make 15 million bucks a year if, you know, Disney performs and he accepted that deal. So his performance provisions are um, up to about 500% of his um of his salary and I, they, they didn't go to detail about now, it. I wonder if he addressed any of these box office flops they've had. They've had these the woke movies now and you know from what I've read of course I don't see a lot of Disney movies anymore but from what I've read they've they've just stunk and they flopped at the box office. He he, he touched on that but but obviously I mean, he doesn't want to go down that road of negativity. You know, um, well, we used to be real good at this, and we aren't anymore. <laughs> you know? um, he talked a lot about streaming, the confusion, um, you know, and, and he really basically said, without saying this, and I'm inferring some of these things from, from what I'm reading, he inferred that they had a big advantage before streaming came along. Their ability to get their product the in front of you, their, their distribution, yep. um, their, their, their ability to bankroll. You know, that, that they could block people out of the market because they had a lot of money and they had a great distribution network and a great brand. I mean, they had a great brand, a phenomenal brand. Um, he, he didn't say this, but I think he accepts that the brand's been damaged a bit by, you know, um, wading off into politics more than they probably should have. But, but he kept talking about streaming. And it led me to believe that all the advantages they had are, are, are far less than they do today. That streaming has allowed companies that couldn't be real competitive with Disney to all of a sudden be very competitive um, with Disney. And, you know, thinking of Netflix and Hulu and, and some of the, I mean, Hulu or Disney. I think I think Disney kind of owns Hulu, don't they? Well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't I'm sure if they don't, they probably will. Right. <laughs> but they own part of it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I kind of made it obvious that, you know, some of these companies, some of these upstarts that, that made investments in streaming before Disney really committed um, to streaming probably have, well, I mean, you know, why, why wouldn't Disney own Hulu? Yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, if they've got the money and they see that streaming's where we're, where we're headed, and it does seem to me, I mean, you would agree with me here, Rev. You know more about this than I do. Um, cord cutting is, I mean, it, it, it's going to, I mean, it's never going to stop. I mean, it, we, we will probably end up at a place where fewer people have cable now than had cable in the 70s. I mean, that's pretty wild. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Been a good 50-year run, and, and I'm sure some of the cable companies made enormous amounts of money. But I think by the year 20, uh, you know, by the, the same year that we'll be all driving electric cars, 
that there'll be fewer cable subscribers in America than there were uh, in 1970. It's just an interesting article I read. We've talked a lot about Disney. Um, you know, I just go back to the comment that a friend and I shared with one another uh, 10 years ago. And I, and I said yesterday, and I'll say, I don't remember if I said to him or he said to me, but one of us said verbally, man, Disney Walt didn't build that place for rich people. But only the, the, the pretty affluent today are considering whether or not it's a, um, I mean, I understand the vacation of a lifetime. You know, I, I told you about loading the kids up and going to Disney. I mean, that's, that's kind of something that uh, you make memories and those memories last last a lifetime but i think disney has strategically decided that because of inflation because of the 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 nature and fundamental structure of the economy in america today the likelihood of them enticing more and more in other words the day of the working guy loading his family up in a wagon you know and crossing his fingers that the tires don't you know go flat uh, because you know he's living on the edge anyway but but he wants to do this for his family and I, I just think Disney has done, I don't think they'll ever make public any of this, but I think Disney's done, I mean, obviously they're a research-oriented company. I mean, they know who their, their clientele are today and who they'll be five or ten years from now. But I think Disney has decided, and I think this is kind of the macro of all macros and plays into politics, I think Disney's decided that the, the American working class have had their ability to come to Disney significantly impacted by things the government has done inflation uh the, just the general cost of living income stagnation uh you know what we talk a lot about the trump movement what it was predicated upon uh you know the, the the trump voter is the guy that could go to disney and and really and truly can't hardly go now in, in essence that's kind of what and Iger, i think in some of his comments he admits and accepts that and i just think disney's deciding that we're going to be a luxury brand we don't like being a luxury brand. Uh, I'm sure Walt doesn't like us being a luxury brand, but but our our most profitable scenario moving forward is to have more people with more income spending more of their money when they come in our park instead of a family of three or four picnicking in the parking lot, you know, staying 18 miles from the park. We would rather just, just laser focus on those folks who do have you know, a good bit of disposable income. And instead of charging, what's, what's the Grand Floridian? Mm-hmm. On, on, instead of charging, you know, three fifty nine a night, let's charge five twenty nine. Because in their world, it really doesn't matter. And that seems to be, to me, where, where Disney... Now, I'm not the CEO of Disney. I'm not on the board at Disney. But I'm no moron, and I can read between the lines. <laughs> sure, these, it looks like Well, I mean, that's the way doing. it looks, yeah. it appears, and appares to be. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back with some... Um, Political news on the other side. I was hoping you could explain what the letters AI stand for when we come back, because I was wondering. It's very complicated. It's, 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 thankfully, you have folks like me okay. that can explain complicated I knew, I knew I could like count it. on you. Uh, if not, I'll get Camel on the phone. <laughs> okay. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Hey, do you really think the guys' kid at Disney were so stupid to think that the stuff they were doing was, you know, basically going so woke or so far left extreme that it was going to be good for business? Or were they just trying to take guys like you and I and start chipping away at us and get us to 
the even though they got guys making out on the park benches there and all the other debauchery that this is the endorsement. I, mean, I just can't imagine. Maybe they are that stupid, or maybe they got a more serious plan. I don't know. So what is the more? No, no, I'll stop, stop there now. So, so, I mean, I'll agree with you that there is no way they can be that stupid. I mean, Disney is a highly successful company run by highly competent businessmen and women. Why are they doing that? I mean, but, but if you ask yourself about the same thing with InBev, you know, why would you make that mistake? So, so you, you talk about some sinister, um, some sinister reason there. What, what do you propose, Breeze? You, you, you take it off the table, and I agree. They're not that stupid. I mean, they're just not that dumb. So why do it? I think maybe, maybe again, if you can go all, all the way down the line on that, maybe they are just trying to destroy the entire world's economies and everything else for that great reset. Or they are just so indoctrinated and so, you know, balled in, sort of like, I hate to use what you're know, like, just so balled into the whole thing, like the Nazis are so balled into this, or the communists. Maybe they're so balled in on their woke, leftist ideals that they're willing to risk it and what they're trying to do is chip away you you notice over the past 50 60 years how we become more and more tolerant of stuff we wouldn't have been go back to the sexual revolution go back to rock and roll you see how we're being but you know granddad then they didn't like it but you know finally after a while they kind of tolerated it the long hair you know the hippie look the immorality, less going to church. You know, there was a time where if, if you went to a town like Papago or Lake City or even Florida, and you know, on a Sunday from 11 to 12, there was nobody out. And if you were out, people looked at you like there was something wrong with you. So uh, maybe it's just about us putting up and tolerating more and more, which we have done. Give a little more, give a little more, give a little more. I mean, it's, it's okay, me and my two boys, we're walking down Disney, and there are two guys making out with each other. There's guys dressed like girls. Uh, and, you know, get where, well, you know, little Bobby decided to get a sex change. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Maybe they're trying to get you guys like you and I to put up with more and more. And just like we have done in the past, kind of just shut our mouths. You and I would kind of complain amongst ourselves, but never really do nothing about it. Never really raised hell by senators about it. We just always kind of took it, you know, and that might be part of it too, you know, but I, I, I don't, I, I just, I, it don't make sense unless you just break it down to the basics and say they're doing it on purpose and they're trying to destroy their company. Why are you doing this in America? Because you're trying to destroy America. Why are you doing this worldwide? Because you're trying to destroy it all. I mean, you see it in these movies. Well, these evil geniuses, their plan is to destroy the earth and rebuild it the way they want it. I mean, you see those science fiction movies. And, they, you know, what? hell, maybe that's all the stuff they're doing. And it may sound crazy, but it's the only thing that makes sense. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, if you look at all these great success stories in American commerce, they are a byproduct of capitalism. I mean, Disney would not have happened in China. Apple, we talked about Apple a second ago. That would not have happened in in, uh, in, in Russia. Uh, with all due respect, um, Google wouldn't have happened in Ukraine. I mean, we have been the bastion for free enterprise. And we know, I mean, the data is empirical now. We know that the data clearly says 
that Americans, young Americans in particular, are more infatuated with a at least a redistributionist model and a collectivist model, probably a socialist model. But I, I, I can remember periods of my life as a younger man questioning what I was seeing. I, I'm not real political. I'm running a business, and I'm going, like, how can somebody be for that much collectivism? I mean, I, socialism had crossed my mind. But, but I think Breeze hits on something here. I don't care how much of a zealot you are in what you believe. The human body does not lit, like living in conflict 24-7. You tire of it. I mean, I, I, I'd like to believe that I'm one of the few people who will uh, endure um, some of that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm any better than anybody because we talked about this before. We all have kind of qualities about ourselves that we like and qualities about ourselves that we don't like. I mean, I could give you a long list of things that I wish I were much better at, but, I, but I've never shied away from conflict. I've always kind of been willing to get in the arena and, and, and take my lumps and, and do the best I can to deliver some. But, but nobody likes living in a state of conflict. And, and, and I, this goes all the way back to the cathedral and the monolith. And I mean, I can go Black Rock and Vanguard or, or Black Guard and Van Rock, if you'd like. <laughs> um, you know, then a horse has left the station. <laughs> that train has left, has left the barn. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but I think Breeze, you know, they, they kind of beat you down. And, you know, if enough forces with enough influence and power uh, begin leading the country in one particular direction, you may not like that, and you may speak out about it, and you may stand your ground for a period of time. But but how many of you want to wake up every day, you know, looking for a fight? So, so I do, and I'm not saying that's what Disney's doing, but and I'm not saying that's what Bud Light did. I'm not saying that's what Target's doing or, or, or Ben & Jerry's. I've got no idea because I come from a world where commerce is the most important thing uh, in commerce is to give your customers what they want, right? I mean, to me, that that's, you know, if uh, I, you build truck beds for a living, you, you better find people who need truck beds, and you better build a good truck bed, and you better build it at a fair price. And if you don't, they'll find somebody who does. So if Disney provides entertainment, if, um, if Bud Light provides beer, and you do something uh, in opposition to your customer base, You'd like to believe that that our our capital system still allows for options and alternatives, and and I, you know I said last week and I'll say it again I think Bud Light is the the the, the biggest example I don't know I mean I don't know what the biggest example of a um a, a debate being had in public but that's what we had I mean it, it was not and and I think there are a lot of um contributors to why Bud Light had such a big struggle with making. Bud Light made a decision a lot of companies have made, right? I mean, Bud Light, Bud Light made a decision that you and I would refer to as wokeism. I mean, they, they kind of gave into the impulses of woke. Now, now, I don't have any idea who at Bud Light decided or who at MBEV or Anheuser-Busch decided to do that, but we know that they decided to make a decision that, that we would characterize as woke. Well, historically, companies have made those decisions and they put up with a little backlash, but ultimately they, they kind of endure. And they've got enough money in the bank. They've got enough, you know, access to capital. They got enough, uh, you know, advertising dollars. They can kind of mask over and, and you know, c- kind of put a Band-Aid on it and, and live through it and come to live to fight another day. Um, to me, Bud Light is the, the only example in my lifetime 
that, that I, I don't know how you recover from. I don't know that you put a Band-Aid on this. And I think one of the great miscalculations that Bud Light made, and I've expressed this to people in the beer business. I mean, I told you, I got some friends, you know, who are very, very affiliated with Anheuser-Busch products. And, and they're as disgusted as you are. I mean, they're up, as upset as you are. That They're probably more upset because their biggest seller is down 30%. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine life 20 years ago if 16-foot flatbed dumps were down 30%. I mean, it sucks. I mean, it really sucks. If you're in the truck body manufacturing business and all of a sudden your, your number one product, a 16-foot flatbed dump, sells at 30% less a rate, I mean, you, you've got problems. And you've got to right size, and you've got to make some fundamental changes to how you run your company. But I think Bud Light was an easy debate for America. Now, I don't know that America's ready to have a complicated debate. How much do you really give up? But if you're a Bud Light drinker and you're fundamentally opposed to what they did by engaging a, a gender dysphoric weirdo, but that's what they did, that they engaged a gender dysphoric weirdo in, in, in kind of a, um, a ceremonial and celebratory um, sort of fashion. Um, the, the, I think the mistake Bud Light made was understanding or misunderstanding how easy Dave Baker could make another choice. I mean, go back to the SUV, the truck bed, uh, the computer, the microphone, uh, the television on the wall. There, there are certain things and brands that we have affinities for, and it's a little harder to make a change. But when you go to the grocery store, convenience store, what's right beside Bud Light? Another domestic light beer. And I think, you know, that they may, and it was, so the point I'm trying to make is to, to breeze this point, it was Bud Light made a decision. The consumer had an easy ability or, or it was not a hard, uh, they didn't have to climb Mount Everest to make another choice. I mean, they, they could just say, uh, not, not for me, not today in this cooler. Here's a Coors Light or a Miller Light or a Modelo or whatever, Corona Light, whatever. You see where I'm headed. I mean, there's an abundance of choices there. Now, now, is America willing to make a hard choice? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But, but these people who run these companies aren't morons. They're smart, competent businessmen and women. I don't know. I mean, I, I could go down this road and I think kind of um, stand my ground. I don't know how in touch with their customers they are anymore. I mean, I think the guy running the distributorship is very in touch with his customers. You know, damn well the guy driving the truck at the convenience store, the grocery store, I mean, he's one of those people. But but when you get to the um to the corporate hierarchy and, and they're, you know, they're at Wall Street one week and they're at the Capitol the next week and they're lobbying for that you get a little bit detached from what reality um truly is. And maybe, Breeze, maybe that's what we're misunder or, or misestimating, underestimating is the fact of how out of touch these people who make these big decisions on behalf of these big companies are with the regular um rank and file american citizen slash worker slash voter slash consumer i mean maybe that's maybe that's maybe we're at a place in america now that that's more the case than it ever has been that these corporate executives and wall street financiers and and senators and congressmen live in these enclaves they, they live in these places that disconnect them from what's happening out here. I mean, everybody laughed when Trump announced. I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a novelty. I mean, they, you know, and, and there's some yahoos out there, but not that many. I mean, there, there's some working stiffs out there mad at the world, but not that many. Uh, you know, and, and maybe, maybe that's the central ingredient 
of these companies making these decisions that you and I scratch our heads with. We're not in those enclaves. I'm not in a Wall Street bank. I'm not in a corner office at a corporate, uh, you know, in a corporate setting. I, I'm not some um, law company representing InBev or, or Target or Disney for that matter. Um, I don't vacation at the Hamptons. I don't eat at some of these five-star restaurants. Maybe. I mean, we talk about income inequality. I mean, maybe that's the driver of this, the, the misunderstanding that the executive has, the owner of the business has about who their customers are and what gets them to the point of not wanting your product anymore. I mean, Disney's finding out. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you said yesterday, surely you're not discounting completely go woke, go broke. I said, no, I'm mm-hmm. not. You know, I just think they made a strategic decision to offer themselves as a luxury brand, but they certainly have not benefited from making Indiana Jones, you know, a cross-dresser. I, I, you know, but that's kind of, you know, you do that because people at your cocktail parties, people in your in your country clubs share, share that um, woke, politically correct um, sentiment. I don't know that to be the case, but but explain in, in a better way why some of these companies would make their base customer mad. Right. I mean, it doesn't yeah, yeah. Why Why did the marketing person at Budweiser think, hey, I've got a great idea. Yeah. This will go over great. We'll sell more beer. Yeah, the, the construction workers will love this. Yeah, right. The truck drivers will love this. Uh, the, the, the guy putting the muffler on my car, he'll love this. <laughs> okay, you're finding out the hard way. No, he doesn't. No, she doesn't. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. The media will not shoot us straight, correct? But every now and then, every now and then, uh, they turn the teleprompter off, <laughs> and they get down to shooting you. Um, uh, they shoot you straight, but they don't mean to. <laughs> Is that fair enough? <laughs> they say the quiet yep. part out loud. Well, I mean, uh, MSNBC's Mika Brzezinski, um, uh, wife, and I- I'll tell you, I told Rev. Rev and I started this show in 2013. 2012. Yeah, 2012. In 2012, we started this show. Scarborough was married. I don't think Mika was married. Um, and they're doing that show together. And I told Rev, I said, they'll be together before you know it. Stop that! I mean, that's making an <laughs> accusation. I mean, that that's that's uh, you stop that. I mean, I you know, well, <laughs> yeah, it didn't take long. Just had a hunch, yeah. you know. That they, <laughs> you they, were they, right. They saw something in one another, and um, and she kind of wanted to be uh, received in some of these places, and he wanted to be obviously. I'll give Joe Scarborough credit for one thing. Some people have sold out, but they kind of half-assed it. But Joe didn't. <laughs> He's all in. I mean, J- when Joe sold out, he. So I'm talking about with with the uh, with the GQ haircut, you know, and and, and going to the uh, going to the opera, and I mean it's everything about good old Joe from the Panhandle of Florida, you know, Congressman Joe Scarborough, mm-hmm. Scarborough Country, Republican, yeah, Republican. Um, I mean, when Joe made the move and made the jump, I mean, he sold his soul for a dollar or seven million dollars, but um, but but he really and truly, it would be almost like we talk about transgenderism. You know, but did you do it? What do you mean, did I do it? Did you do it? You know, how, how committed are you to it? Uh, do you have one of them or not? <laughs> you know, it's kind of what I'm, uh, how committed, well, Joe is obviously 100,000% committed, but but every now and then, when they're sitting side by side, um, the affair came to fruition and they got married, and, and I guess they're happy. I don't have any idea. Uh, they're doing well financially, but, um, but Mika will get off script. And it concerns people at MSNBC because when Mika gets off script, 
I want to be careful here. Remember we talk about women and emotions? The emotional side of a female politico rears its head, and she becomes um, unscripted. And out of that unscripted Mika Brzezinski, you get what they really think, what they really believe. And by they, I mean, you know, the the liberal mainstream media. So, Josh, if you don't mind, what do we call this, actuality? Actuary? I mean, what, what do you call it, Rev? Yeah, it's actuality. 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 Yeah. There, I want to make sure I'm right with the lingo. Mm-hmm. So here is, um, I think this is a couple of days ago uh, when, uh, may, I don't know, so, uh, the, the cameraman kicked the cord of the teleprompter and Mika had to ad lib for a second or two or three. And as she begins to speak, Joe kind of leans over like, hey, make a make a minute. That's enough. That's enough. Okay, let, let's go there. I don't know how many of you heard this. Probably not many not since it's on MSNBC. But here's Mika Brzezinski. Here's Mika Brzezinski. Tens of people heard it. Here's Mika Brzezinski not reading a teleprompter and being 100% candid with her audience. To schedule very carefully. Yeah, I think his staff needs to own his age. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job uh, helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule and you are managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and doing getting on planes and getting off planes. And yes, he's 80. You need to be there for him and you need to make a pathway. And you sure as hell better make sure he doesn't fall on a sandbag. And I blame the staff for that. I mean, these are the things that are going to hurt him. These are things that are going to be played on a loop. Okay? Let him do his job. Let him do his speeches. Let him work on policy. Let him do his connections in Congress, unlike any president that we've seen, uh, I, I don't know, since Clinton. But my God, make sure you know your secret service you're his staff that you were there and you're telling him what's next and it's not because don't don't take this as oh he can't even get from one place to another when you're busy and you're on stage and we've been on stage i've done speeches and i'm so nervous i'm doing the speech i'm trying to get it right and when it's done i don't know which way to go and i'm looking for direction so do a better job because you can't have these video images of the president tripping or the president like going the wrong way. It's not going to work in this presidency because his age is going to be a factor. His age is going to be a factor and it's your job to make sure he gets from one place to another. He can handle the presidency. You have to handle his schedule and where he goes. Well, and, and, and the schedule. It makes me mad. The scheduling, I mean, the scheduling is so important. You have with every president, you have different strengths, you have different weaknesses. If, if, if Wow. They all- he can handle the job. <laughs> he just can't get on and off yeah. the stage. Can he? Oh, but he is perfectly capable oh. at sitting down with Putin or Xi or Zelensky, whomever, whatever other world leader that is required of um, <laughs> of Joe Biden to sit before and negotiate on America. He's fine with yeah, that. He can go toe-to-toe I mean, with you know Putin and Xi, but not with the sandbag. He is a fiscal specimen when it, when it comes to that. He's an intellectual heavyweight. I mean, he at the negotiating table with President Xi is in America's best interest. I mean, Xi's outmatched, Putin's mm-hmm. outmatched, all these other foreign leaders and diplomats. But somebody's got to help his old ass on and off that stage. <laughs> and right? don't let him ride a bike. We can't have this loop of him <laughs> falling down um, every other day. I mean, we just cannot have that. I mean, guys, that's where we are. We've reduced our government to um, commentators on television lecturing to the people who handle the president. I mean, they're not staff. They're babysitters. I mean, who changes the diaper at the White House? I mean, that, that, that'll be the next question. If he soils himself, 
I mean, how did you guys let that happen? How does he not have a fresh depends on? I mean, I'm serious. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's the that, that's what she's kind of sort of arguing. He's not able to do these things himself. So, so we got to have good people around him, not not helping him, you know, come up with positions and policy, uh, but but rather getting on and off the stage. He can't fall off the stage. We can't have visuals of the president falling down every day. I told Rev this morning. I text with Robert. Uh, one day last week, I, when we were on vacation, Robert and I began texting one another about some of these independent voters and some of the private expenditures that will be spent for Trump, against Trump, for Biden, and against Biden. And once again, I'm arguing the inevitable. I mean, I, you know, who knows what could happen. Anything can happen, but it looks to me um, like it's Biden-Trump again. And we're talking about the independent voters in these 28 counties who bailed on Trump in 2020, voted for him in, in 16, bailed in 20. Um, I mean, you, we, we got kind of a two-pronged dilemma. You've got, you know, voting harvesting. Drew McKissick, we think, will be with us in about an hour or so. I want to kind of go down that road with Drew. And is it 8.05 when Drew calls? 805. 8.05. 8.05. So about 40 minutes from now, uh, SCGOP chairman and co-national chair Drew McKissick will be with us. And I, I kind of want to explore that with, with Drew. But, but you know, Biden got 81 million votes. Trump got 75, 74 and a half million uh, vote. So Trump's got to, he's got to pick up a little bit. I mean, he's got to gain some of those independents back. I get he went from 63 to 75, but it's undeniable in those 28 counties in five states. I mean, th- th- there was some loss of independence. I mean, th- th- there's some loss of Republicans, which is the travesty in this. If you call yourself a Republican and the Republican party selects this guy to be the nominee, to me, you almost have an unspoken obligation to go vote for the guy. I mean, if, if not, you're just not a Republican. Go vote for the um, uh, for the member of the the other party. I want to I want to stay on that road, but we got to take a break. We're kind of loaded up today. I think John uh, John, Decker. John Decker will be with us in what two or three minutes. Yep. So let's take After a break. break. Pay some bills. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We've had a lot of guests this week. Had a lot of guests mm-hmm. um yesterday and the day before. We've got several guests um today. One that we. Uh, always count on is on Thursday morning at about this time, John Decker, who is Gray Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. Had a great uh, July 4th week off, and uh, hope you're having a good week this week as well. Uh, we are. Hope you did the same. So, so, John, I've got a question. I'm concerned. Um, Ukraine is pressing for membership in NATO. One of the articles of NATO said that if one nation of NATO is at war, they're all at war. Now, I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but that's kind of my interpretation of that pact. How close is Ukraine to joining NATO, and where does President Biden and the United States government stand in regards to that issue? They are not close. Uh, there is no timeline, that concrete timeline that was given for Ukraine to join NATO, and it's for the reason that you just stated. It's Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which says that an attack on one NATO country is an attack on every NATO nation. And if you admit Ukraine right now, that would mean technically the U.S. and all of the 31 members of NATO would technically be at war with Russia. And that's one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason, why Ukraine is not being offered membership into NATO right now. President Biden, before leaving on this European trip in an interview, said uh, we won't consider membership for Ukraine until the war in Ukraine is over. So I think that hopefully that 
uh, calms the your your concerns and your fears uh, about you know a World War III. I think that that is a real concern that many countries have. Even President Zelensky said that. We recognize that he said. Uh, this would lead to World War III if we were accepted right away. But, John, doesn't this solidify the stance that some have in America? And I'm talking about uh, the, the the Republican Party's moving away from neoconservatism. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I've seen the data. I've, I've seen, I mean, w- w- the Republicans have become somewhat of an anti-interventionist movement within, within its party. Let, let's say we get past this episode of Ukrainian Russian conflict and Ukrainian is allowed to be a member of NATO isn't it far more likely that Russia invades Ukraine again and the United States has no choice but to engage because of article 5 in NATO that's my concern but I, mean, I understand with clarity what they're doing now but my concern is do we believe the next Russian president is not going to be expansionist in nature because that would be the first time in their history Well, I think that, you know, because of Article 5 that exists, that's the reason why you don't see uh, Vladimir Putin right now. I mean, who's to say what may happen in the future? But I think that's the thing that makes him think twice before marching into Latvia or Lithuania uh, because of Article 5. And those two countries are members of NATO. Uh, And, you know, down the road, let's say it's five years down the road, uh, Ukraine's a member of NATO. I think that that would uh, lead Vladimir Putin to, again, think twice before taking any action against a country that's a member of the NATO Defense Alliance. That's interesting because some some complain. I mean, I've heard it, read it, uh, and, and reasonable people say that NATO is an anti-Russia you know, organization, and Russia, I think, perceives it uh, to be the case. I want to shift gears and go to um, yesterday on Capitol Hill, FBI Director Christopher Wray appeared. Um, to me, it's kind of non-eventful because he doesn't answer a lot of questions. Somebody says because of the confidentiality of this matter or an ongoing investigation, I can't offer anything relevant said that you heard. Right. I mean, you heard that for five hours yesterday, and it's understandable. That is regardless of who the FBI director is. Uh, But, you know, Christopher Wray frustrated uh, many Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee yesterday because of those types of answers. But those types of answers are, I think, what we should expect uh, as it relates to ongoing investigations and uh, the fact that the law enforcement, the head of the FBI, is not going to comment on an ongoing investigation. Uh, That being said, he did push back on some of the uh, challenges that he got from some Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, including from Jim Jordan, who's the chairman, um, and, you know, directly said that the FBI is not protecting Hunter Biden, uh, defended uh, the execution of that search warrant uh, at former President Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago in August of last year. Uh, and so uh, was that an effective hearing for Republicans trying to show bias against conservatives? I, I think that's all in the eye of the beholder. I, I didn't think that there were any great smoking gun moments that took place during that five-hour hearing yesterday. I tend to agree with you. Speaking of Trump, he's trying to postpone a federal trial until after the election. What was the legal story there? Well, uh, what happened is Monday night, there was a filing, a motion that was put forward to the judge presiding over this case in which uh, Donald Trump's lawyers asked for a delay until after the November 2024 election. They talked about the fact that they said the former president could not get a fair trial now, uh, could not get an impartial jury now. And also they throw in 
uh, that he's running for president right now. Those are not reasons to delay a trial. They are not grounded in anything legal. And I don't think that uh, this federal judge, even though she's appointed to the bench by Donald Trump, is going to agree ultimately to delay this trial until after the presidential election next year. It's going to happen before the election. Uh, I understand why you put in the motion. I, if I was his lawyer, I would put in that motion, too. You have to uh, you know, do everything that you can to protect your client. But they're not going to win on that motion. Think about it this way, Ken. Uh, if just running for president was a reason to delay a trial, you'd have uh, criminal defendants all over America saying, you know what, I'm going to run for Congress. I'm going to run for the governorship. I'm going to run for the Senate to delay my trial in the same way that Donald Trump did. So I think you, you go down a slippery slope. Uh, if you agree to that motion that was put forward by the former president's lawyers. John, do you seat a jury? You're an attorney. Do you seat a jury by asking the question, you know, who are you going to vote for in the 2024 primary or general right. election? Now, obviously, you, you try to find an impartial jury, somebody who can be yeah. fair and objective, but That's how right. do you do that in, in such a complicated matter? Well, sometimes people think that finding an impartial jury for a very prominent case means that you've never heard of the case. Uh, you know, I, I think of a prominent case, um, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, you know, that Murdoch case uh, in, in, in your neck of the woods. You know, you found an impartial jury, meaning jurors can put aside anything they heard about the case to be impartial, to be fair, to listen to the evidence and then make a decision on the evidence. And I think even with Donald Trump, you can find a jury that can do just that, regardless of how you view him personally, regardless of how you voted in 2016 or 2020 or how you intend to vote in 2024, you can find a jury. And then as it relates to finding uh, the difficulty, according to Donald Trump's lawyers, of getting that jury right now, what makes it easier to get that jury after the election? You know, so uh, to me, that's not a good argument either that. Uh, the president, the former president's lawyers are putting forward. John, do we know if there'll be cameras allowed in the courtroom at the proceedings of the trial? There will not be. It is a federal trial, and that goes for every federal court, uh, whether you're talking about a trial court, an appellate court, certainly the Supreme Court. There are no cameras permitted in the courtroom. There are no still cameras permitted in the courtroom. You can't even get a photograph of what the defendant looked like. That's why, you know, you think about these very high-profile federal trials. You see these sketches of what's happening in the courtroom. That's what you and I have to rely on if, if we're not in the courtroom, you know, seeing it with our own two eyes. Can you imagine the spin from both sides as to what may or may not have happened uh, during yeah, the course of the trial right. that day in the court without us seeing with our own eyes, eyes and interpreting the way we choose uh, to interpret? Last uh, subject, John Decker is um, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, joins us on Thursday morning, um, there was a little bit of encouraging news relating to inflation, but in the real world, John, it's still a central issue. Uh, I talk to people every day, real people in the real world, yeah, and they're sure. struggling with, with how much things cost, whether you go to the grocery store, a ball game, fill your car up with yeah. gas. It is unbelievably expensive to be a consumer in America today. Um, and, and I would imagine the Biden administration knows that is a significant headwind as they seek reelection. Well, it is. Absolutely. Always jobs in the economy can, no matter what kind of an election you're talking about, you know, whether you're talking about a, an election for governor or Congress or certainly a presidential election, always the biggest issue. Uh, but think about where uh, we were as it relates to inflation last year at this time. It was at nine percent, uh, now down to three percent. So that's 
pretty positive. But to your point, does uh, the American public, do they feel or notice the differences? And to a large extent, they may not. You know, gas prices still high, not as high as they were. They were $5 a gallon last year at this time. Uh, and But rent is still high. Uh, the price for airline tickets is still high. Uh, the, the price for groceries uh, still high. So that is the headwind that uh, Joe, one of those headwinds. I mean, he's got many. But that is one of the headwinds that he is facing as he uh, continues this quest to win another four-year term in the White House. Very informative as usual. Thank you, John. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Ken. Thanks. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Talk to you real soon. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Great television. Senior national editor, White House correspondent, John. We say great television uh, because Gray owns WMBF, the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, um, and our media partner, as well as um, the NBC affiliate Columbia WIS television, both owned by by Gray. That's kind of a um, there's some synergies there that we try to take advantage of. Um, somebody asked yesterday about supply chain, and I mean this, the supply chain adversely affects uh, inflation. I mean if you've got inflation, in other words, in the and I'll try to sound like an economist here for a second. So in the COVID era, let's call it that. So so during COVID, not only did we in infuse capital cash uh, liquidity into the economy we strangled production so you got supply and demand production was in decline uh you know liquidity was on the on the ascend so you've got c- kind of that double whammy uh if even if the economy is, is kind of moving along as normal if you infuse that much liquidity it leads to uh you know a lot of inflation the reason inflation got so out of control is we put all the liquidity into the economy and then disallowed people from being as productive as they needed to be. So if you lessen productivity, you increase liquidity, you're going to have an inflation bomb, which is kind of what we're still dealing with as we speak. Um, I'll give you a real world example. I know these numbers to be true. I know this to be a real deal. This is not hypothetical. This is not what I read in the New York Times, I know of a business in this state that is trying to expand, and it's in a rural part of our state. And because of inflation, because of the supply chain, the project is about seven and point ah seven point two million dollars. I mean, it's 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 capital expenditures. It's building a building. It's buying some property. It's adding some infrastructure. I mean, it's a big deal. Seven between seven and eight million dollars. I mean, that's what they're going to invest to grow their business. The appraisal the bank ordered came back at $2.5 million. Now, it's in rural America. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If it were in Manhattan, probably be a different story. If it were it along the coast, it'd probably be a different story. But that's what inflation has done to some of these businesses trying to, uh, you know, you got a good business. You need to grow your business. You got to borrow capital. And you get a price on a project, and the price comes back at seven and a half million dollars, and because it's somewhere between seven and eight, I get seven point two or seven point seven, but I'm around off and say seven and a half million. The bank orders the appraisal; the appraisal comes back less than three million. So the appraisal dictates what the bank can lend. The bank says, "Look, we can lend eighty percent of three million dollars." Doesn't get anywhere near close enough to to building the project. That's a real example. I mean, I know those numbers to be accurate. I know that deal is live, and and it's not probably going to happen because of all this inflation. 
and we're talking about cost of steel, uh, cost of labor, co- cost of uh, cost of infrastructure, and cost of borrowing money. Yeah, cost of borrowing money. I mean, no question about it. It's gone from um four uh, percent to eight percent. It's doubled. Uh, so so servicing debt is far more expensive uh, than it has been, and you know we're, we're still. But it's kind of a new. It's, it's interesting to me that that we believe we're making progress on inflation when we spent more money that we don't have in the last six months that we ever have in our nation's history. I'm talking about outside of a um you know a special a, a special legislative action, the CARES Act, the you know the the American Wars Act. I mean, there there've been single events that that we've spent more at a more I mean in other words we spent 6.3 trillion during COVID, but but we are running a normal budget deficit. In the last six months, our, our normal operating budget deficit exceeds anything this country has ever encountered. We spent about $1 trillion in the I, last six months that we don't have. I was going to say, I read a headline the other day that said, we've spent a trillion dollars since they did the debt ceiling. That's deal. right. That's right. Uh, well, that's not even six months ago. Yeah. Three, four months ago. Right. That, that's right. Um, because we didn't put it down. I mean, it's not a debt ceiling. I mean, if it's a ceiling, you can't surpass it. We, we granted Congress the authority to spend as much money as they want to until November of 2020, excuse me, January of 2025. Might have been December 25. Remember, we get past the, election. Right the election. This was not to make the debt ceiling an, you know, an issue with the election. I mean, that, that, there's no way the Fed can raise rates to a point to suppress inflation. I mean, I'm not buying to 3.26%, whatever uh, you know, the report is, the CPI says, on inflation, it's much higher than that. I mean, it, and, it, and it's not transitory. I mean, it, it's never going to be transitory. Whatever you paid for a jar of peanut butter, forget it. Whatever you paid for a gallon of milk, forget it. I mean, as, as Rev said, we've spent a trillion dollars that we don't have. We've surpassed the debt ceiling by $1 trillion dollars. Since our Congress voted to raise the debt ceiling, I said six months is probably four months or so ago. We've never spent money at the rate we're spending money today. And I, I just, you know, once again, I, I asked Tim Scott yesterday, and I don't think he gave a good answer because I don't think there's a good answer. I mean, I think Tim gave a, a typical can political speak answer, but the, what are we going to do about the debt? I mean, are we going to really and truly have a nation $50 trillion in debt? $60 trillion in debt, $70 trillion in debt. I think Tim may have said something like, you know, if you get the economy growing at 5.5%, it generates another trillion dollars in revenue. Okay, when's the last time our economy grew annually? Not quarterly, annually at 5.5%. When you start taking money out of the private sector, and, 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 you know, that's what we're doing. I mean, we're taking more and more and more and more and more money out of the private sector. We're giving it to the public sector. The public sector is fine. I mean, the public sector is getting along okay. No, nobody didn't get paid. No, no pensions have been reduced. No, no health care uh, has been uh, discontinued. And this goes back to a fundamental argument I have. Uh, whether they intended to or not, the public sector, I didn't say this person or that person, the public sector in general declared war on the private sector, and they're kicking their ass. I mean, it's Mike Tyson versus Marvin Hagler or, or Marvin Frazier, or Joe Frazier's son. That was the one that you, if you bit your hamburger, you missed the fight. 
You know, next thing you know, you got a, a guy crumpled over in the corner, you know, kind of hung up in the ropes there. That's when Tyson was the baddest man on the planet. That's kind of where we are. And and, and how you get away from I, I don't have any idea. I mean, Tim offered a reasonable, I mean, yeah, if the economy grows at 5.5%, it will kick off an extra trillion dollars in revenue. We're growing at about 1.75%, 1.25%. But that's what, 20%, uh, 15%? So we've got to grow another eight. I mean, do you really believe that that's achievable? No, no. But until you unleash this economy by not taxing, not regulating, not mandating, not stipulating, uh, but we tend to do more and more of that instead of less and less of that. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I reiterate, two Celsius in four hours are better than one Celsius in one hour. Now they help us. They sponsor this show, Pepsi of Florence. So I'm doing the math. I'm doing them a disservice. We'd rather you drink a Celsius every hour and just right. be in complete and total chaos. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> 200 grams of caffeine every every hour would create a monster. Um, but but I have found in my particular line of work uh, w- with what I'm required to do every morning, two Celsius over four hours <laughs> is better than one Celsius in one so you're hour. you're kind of pacing yourself yeah, for I'm the four hours. I'm kind of a Celsius marathoner. Right. In, instead of a Celsius sprinter. But um, but the Celsius marathoner may not consume as much Celsius as a Celsius sprinter. And our job is to, you know, help them sell Celsius, right? And, and doing a four-hour radio show is kind of like a marathon on a talk radio station, It is, right? especially when people don't call in the middle of summer. Um, <laughs> well, I, I need that interaction busy. to stimulate. I mean, really and truly. Um, if not, I'll get up on these tangents and we'll talk about, you think? Uh, we'll talk about, you know, um, white nationalism, extreme nationalism. Uh, you know, I've got all these theories. I mean, they're not predicated or not founded upon any, um, uh, evidence is just simply the way I see and the way I believe, but, um, patriotism and nationalism and, and extreme nationalism and, you know, immigration. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, a, a lot of this is. Uh, born in, and we make up a couple of words here, um, a lot of the white nationalism in America today is c- kind of um, immig- immigration restrictionism, um, trade protectionism. I mean, that, that, those are my words, not some of the experts out there, but it, it's a fair debate. The, 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 the point I tried to make yesterday is when Tommy Turbyville says white nationalist, I mean, it may, maybe it's dog whistle for racist. I don't know. I mean, I don't know Turbyville's heart. I think white supremacist is racism 101, to believe your race is supreme to another. But I think white nationalism, I mean, there's a fair debate. I'm a white dude, and right now in my political existence, I'm pretty nationalistic. I mean, I, I want American interests to be prioritized over uh, some, some, of these, um, so, some of these globally centric endeavors uh, that, that we've included. So, so I want to uh, go back to something you mentioned earlier this morning. We were honored to have Senator Tim Scott on with us yesterday morning. Um, and you made a comment just kind of quickly in the last uh, segment or the segment before where you thought that there were a few answers during his interview that you weren't really impressed with. Well, I mean, I was, I was not impressed with his answer on the debt. There, and, and, and I will be honest with you, I mean, a fair to t- there is no good answer. 
I mean, I, I don't know who and you, could... And you've kind of made a pledge that you will ask these presidential candidates, and basically anybody who's in office, when you have an opportunity to to make a comment on those important issues of energy and debt. Rev, I think it matters. And we got SCGOP Chairman uh, Drew McKissick on the phone with us. I'd like to get Drew to chime in here. I, and he's the co-chair of the National Party, so there's another reason for Drew to... I think, it's, I think all of these issues matter. I mean, I, I think, obviously, the social fabric of America is is part of who we are so do we endorse gender dysphoria as normal or not do we uh, allow women to have abortions in the third trimester i mean all those matter that they matter tremendously but in the in, in the grand scheme of things as i live my life i'm not negatively or positively impacted by gender dysphoria much i mean it's such a small percentage of our population I mean, it's activism 101 is what it is. A small group of people make a lot of noise and the body politic, you know, kind of kind of reacts accordingly. But but the point I've tried to make, and, and I do think Tim and everybody else who comes on this show needs to formulate a plan on energy and debt because those do affect our lives. I mean, that, that they will absolutely impact the way you live the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life, however old you are. Our energy policy at the federal level Will, will directly affect or impact the way my three kids live their lives. What does fuel cost? Where do we get fuel from? Uh, how is our energy generated? Uh, the debt. Uh, the debt will negatively impact my kids' existence as an American citizen if we don't do something about it. I don't know how much my life will be impacted, whether we normalize gender dysphoria or not, allow men to marry men and women to marry women. I mean, I'm not for that. I'm totally opposed to that. And I do believe it. It changes the fabric of a nation, but energy and debt are, to me, the macro of all macros that beat on our door every single morning, whether we vote Republican or Democrat. Guess what? Republicans buy gas. Republicans heat their homes. Democrats buy gas. Democrats heat their homes. Uh, Republicans, it's not, we're, we're not having an inflation bubble that affects only Democrats or Republicans. Go to the grocery store. I mean, and that, that's debt, and that's that's energy. And, and I think Tim gave a good answer on energy. His answer on the debt was got to grow the economy at 5.5%. Okay? And it kicks off another trillion dollars in revenue. Okay? Th- there's got to be more than that. There, there's got to be an explanation of what we do to grow the economy at, at 5.5%. If that's, if that's the, I mean, that, that's the sound bite. But, but if you're running for president, there's got to be, a, a, you know, a paragraph or two or three that follows that to explain what we need to do to, you know, allow the, the economy to grow as fast. Drew, j- jump in here, Drew. I mean, well, am I yeah, making sense well, there? You know, a- a- absolutely. I mean, look, there's, there's one thing to recognize a problem. It's another thing, obviously, to have action items. You know, how do we address the problem? How do we fix it? Uh, and, you know, you've got different, obviously, types of issues out there. I mean, social issues, economic issues, trade-related issues, debt-related issues, energy-related issues. A lot of these things, by the way, they're interrelated with one another. Uh, and, and I'll say this. Um, I've never seen an example uh, in history of a country uh, that has, for any considerable length of time, been able to successfully be socially liberal and fiscally conservative. You know, one of those things impacts the other more so than the other way around because it, you know, it, it, it leads to the type of person you are and then by extension the type of society or culture you are. And that affects a lot of things, how we would look at debt and how we would look at taxes and other things like that. So, again, they're all interrelated. Uh, you know, and you have to 
you know, um, I guess, you know, if we were to pretend to be doctors here for a minute, we have to, you know, heal the whole patient, you know, and deal with the things holistically, if you will. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, sometimes we can get too far, you know, down one particular rabbit trail uh, and, and not address the other things that continue to, you know, to, to fester. I've kind of, you know, said this as a joke before, and, you know, I think because it is kind of a joke, you know, how do you pay back $37 trillion? You don't. That, that's that's probably that's the I mean, probably what ends up happening uh, is uh, a couple of different things. One, uh, you get to a point where you know a nation actually tries to pay that much money down and, through exorbitant taxes, which causes a political you know uh, upheaval uh, and uh, stops that from happening. Uh, or you try to inflate your way out of it, which is probably what's most likely to happen. Which means money over time is going to become worth less and less. Um, yeah, because at some point, though, you have to stop the bleed. One thing to figure out, how do we pay back $37 trillion? Well, first thing is we got to stop the bleeding, uh, and that means we have to live within our means. Uh, and that's, you know, I would say an easier problem, and I put that in air quotes, an easier problem for elected officials to address uh, if they would and if they'd get on the same page about it. Uh, but, you know, that's hard to do without – uh, you know, the political uh, uh, means to do it. And many times, even when you do have the political means, it's hard for people to do. Uh, and when I say that, I mean the political power to do it. Uh, then it's sometimes it's difficult for them to find the political willpower to do it because of the choices that end up having to be made. Uh, but you're kind of getting to a point now where, you know, change is going to be forced on us. Uh, but when you're making things worse, as you were talking about a minute ago, take, for instance, with energy, uh, you know, that, that impacts everything, you know, from the price of loaf of bread that you buy to, you know, your ability to go be ambassador to Polly's Island last week. You know, it's, <laughs> all these things are interrelated with one another. And if we're not dealing with it uh, in a way that, that unleashes the power of the market, uh, you know, instead of trying to dictate things through the heavy hand of government or, you know, the, the almighty wisdom of a few bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., uh, then it's not going to be successful, and we're going to have problems. They're going to get worse. And, and Drew, I'm a Republican because I believe we offer the best solutions. I mean, I don't think I offer the best solutions at every turn. I'm certainly not that arrogant, but but I do believe that Republicans in general offer better solutions to energy, better solutions to debt, better j- solutions to some of the uh, social fabric of our country. But here's our conundrum, and I, I want to get your take on this. I read a lot. Uh, when I wasn't drinking last week at Polly's Island. And um, and, and one of the things that, that concerns me, and, and you would know far more the data than I, but but there's a there's a segment in our party, and I, I know we redundantly talk about this, but we got to say grace over this. And we got to figure out a way to, to kind of, you know, work through this conundrum. We've got a percentage of Republicans who just ain't voting for Trump. We, we got a percentage of Trump voters who ain't voting for anybody but Trump. And that number's substantial. It's not 50%. It's not 60%. But it could be 15, 20, 25% in either one of those camps. Is it your job as SCGOP chairman, a co-chair of the party, to try to help those two factions come to some sort of um, reasonable resolution? Sure. And, you know, again, fundamentals, politics. Politics 101, successful politics is about arithmetic. Uh, particularly about addition and multiplication, not about subtraction and division. Uh, you know, losers don't make policy. You got to win. How do you win? You got to get to 50% plus one. Uh, 
Uh, and in the national sense, you know, we have the presidential race. You got the electoral college. We've got out of you know uh, 50 states. You know, you and I can bet our house right now and probably have 38 or 40 of them are going to vote. Uh, the other ones are where the, the battle is going to be contested. Uh, and we got to have uh, the right resources and the right people at the table, right people being productive in their own lane to actually make what you refer to happen. And that is uh, folks who would prefer someone else to be on board with whoever the nominee is, because whoever the nominee is is going to be infinitely better than Joe Biden or whoever else Democrats may put up if for some, you know, reason, way or whatever they manage to shuffle him off to the side. Uh and and look, and that, that's something we face in every, pretty much every election, you know, because there's all their primaries in most elections, uh, and many times they get divisive. I mean, yeah, we're we're from South Carolina. We know about divisive primaries, you know. You know, I mean, we've been through that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, as as a co-chairman and the state chairman of the state party, I've got around for the last good number of years and meet deal with folks from other state parties. Uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, hard-hitting primaries, you know, there's not a lot of folks who, who could hold a candle to us. But I will say, though, in spite of all that, we do a pretty good job of winning races in South Carolina. Uh, so, I mean, that's a microcosm of what has to happen at the national level and getting everybody, at least, you know, grudgingly onto the same page. And look, and I talk to donors uh, and I talk to grassroots activists who have the same attitude in one way or another that you just expressed. Uh, but we do know what they don't want. And the question is, okay, do, but you know, not do they vote for the other guy, but do they turn out? That's key. Uh, you know, do they make sure that they vote in that particular race? That's important. Do they still, you know, stroke a check, uh, to help make, uh, the political machinery possible? Uh, you know, once we get past, you know, the nomination process, uh, and that's something that is always with us because every election we've got choices. Uh, you know, it's free market, uh, and everybody doesn't like everybody. Uh, and political parties are by nature their coalitions. You know, coalitions of people who don't agree on everything, but we got some fundamentals that we agree on. And then at some point, we have to have the conversation about okay, how, how much do we truly care about what we say we agree on to the point where we're willing to go with somebody that ain't our favorite person in order to try to get down that road. And that's something we have to do in every election cycle. Drew, do we, and this is a weird way to ask, but do we run a campaign to try to find common ground? In other words, we're going to have a highly contested primary. We have a very polarizing front runner in this highly contested uh, primary. I would argue it's not different, but maybe a little more intense than it normally is. Some of these divisions within because of uh, of that mm-hmm. eight hundred pound gorilla who's in who's in the room. Some wish he would be gone, and some wish he would stay forever. I get all that. I mean, I'm I'm kind of in both camps yeah. there. I'm I'm not an always Trumper. I'm not a never Trumper. I'm somewhere I think between um, the two. But but should the party identify this as a legitimate issue and begin campaigning to these two camps? Well, there, there's a there's a lot that goes on, obviously. Behind- comes to with the campaign well tell us but, as much as you're comfortable telling us i mean you you know <laughs> that issue better than i do you yeah. know that there's an element in mine and your party that are going to vote for nobody but trump mm-hmm. there's an element in our party that ain't ever voting for trump well say so, so for instance when it comes down to the mechanics of the campaigns that i was referencing earlier so you know for instance we've had a lot of conversations about uh you know early voting ballot harvesting et cetera, et cetera, all these different things that not South Carolina, but other states end up dealing with because of change election laws. 
and where we haven't been able to change those laws, uh, you know, we've got to be better at whatever those laws are out at turning out our vote and we'll win. Well, you know, you've had a lot of Republicans, a lot of folks in those states who, you know, and, and a lot of candidates who have said, you know, no early, no early voting, no mail-in voting, only voting on election day, and try to make that some sort of, you know, religious dogma, you know, when it comes to elections. Well, that ain't the way to win, particularly in those states, because the rules of the road require that we actually use these other tools and other options to get our vote out in order to win. Well, one of the things that we're working to do is to get all of the presidential campaigns, particularly because they've got such high visibility, and then down at the state level, other races, to get on board with that program I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago called, you know, Bank Your Vote. Mm -hmm. It's a way to actually exploit that and exploit those rules in those states because it doesn't matter who the nominee is, even if it's a person who has been saying religiously only vote on election day, everything else is wrong, that person is going to want to win. And they're going to understand the math when you know, the math is just laid bare to everybody that the only way we're going to win, particularly in those states that I'm referencing earlier, the, the targeted ones, the ones that are going to decide this thing, the only way we're going to win those states is by expanding our voter pool. And that's getting out to those low propensity, conservative inclined or Republican voters who's got to poke with a sharp stick several times to get them to show up. And that candidate, whoever that candidate is, whoever that nominee is, is going to have to be on board for that because that's the only way we're going to win. So we've been working behind the scenes now with as many of the different campaigns and all these different levels, uh, particularly the presidential candidates, to get them on board with that program, uh, to actually begin to use it once we roll this out, uh, and to promote it and promote that message of voting early and expanding our universe. So a lot of little things like that that we have to do to bring them to the table on the mechanics of winning. Uh, but when it, when it comes to talking about, you know, campaigning among the Republican electorate, if you will, uh, that's not the kind of thing that the RNC, you know, particularly and the state parties are fitted to do. I mean, we are effectively campaign committees, and we've got some basic mechanics that we have to do rather than the messaging end of things. Uh, because if we don't do those basic mechanics, nobody else will. Nobody else is equipped to do them, and in some cases, nobody else can legally do them. Uh, and if we don't do the things that only we can do, uh, we're going to have a problem, and that's we have to. That's the thing that we have to focus on. Drew, one minute. You got, got to get out of here, but I, I want to get your. So, so you believe, as RNC co-chair, that we're making progress in catching up to the Democrats in, in what I'll refer to as voting season instead of election day. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And look, and I'll say this by the way, just quick statistic. You know, the last election cycle, more Republicans turned out and voted last year than Democrats nationwide to the tune of about 4 million in terms of just total turnout nationwide, you know, total number of votes that were, were you know, Republican candidates and Democrat candidates. The problem is where they turned out and didn't turn out. And, you know, we had, we talked about some of those Senate races where we have problems and so forth. So, you know, I'm not saying everything's perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we make great strides in the 2020 cycle and we're building on all that now. And this program I just referenced a minute ago is another big piece of that that we'll have all the presidential candidates uh, and all the way down to the local level participating in before this is over. That will help drive that low propensity turnout in those targeted states, and that makes winning more likely. And that's very encouraging. Thank you, my man. Appreciate all that info. Have a great one. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the Republican National Committee. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. We have with us political strategist from America First Works. She's executive director, Ashley Hayek. Uh, Ashley, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. I'm great. How about yourself? I am doing well. So yesterday I watched with bated breath for the FBI director, Christopher Ray to answer questions and he didn't. He, he deferred. He, um, he, he, uh, Stonewalled he, he, he stumbled word. and stepped around, uh, so some of the answers is that a fair interpretation? Some of the things that we really want to know, and if you're a Republican, you're suspicious that there may be an attempt uh, by the federal government to weaponize some of its most powerful forces, the FBI being one. I don't know if Republicans left yesterday any less suspicious, but any more assured. What was your take on that? I think you provided an excellent summary, and that's why Americans are not just suspicious, but only 37% of Americans have a favorable view of the FBI. And his Christopher Ray's lack of um, forwardness, the lack of answers continue to reinforce why. I mean, when asked about the FBI's investigation into the financial activity of the Biden family, he just refused to answer the questions. Um, and this is after we recently learned that the FBI was actually slow walking the investigation, which is quite an extreme opposite reaction to what they've done to President Trump. Ashley, is this our hippie moment? I mean, as a Republican, we've historically defended institutions. We've said, you got to trust the FBI. You got to trust the American military. You've got to trust the CIA. I mean, that's kind of a weird way to explain it. But it's interesting to me to watch Democrats defend the honor of our federal government and Republicans go on the attack. Is this our hippie moment? You know, I love that you call it a hippie moment. Our, our justice system has become very partisan and hyper-politicized. Um, you could say the same for our military right now. I'm a Marine wife. I'm a proud Marine wife. I love our military. And you can even say, you know, the guys, the men and women on the ground for the FBI or the men and women on the ground for our military, they don't buy into this hyper-politicization um, of these agencies. However, what we've seen happen and what we've seen unfold, this is what you would expect from a Russia or a Cuba or a Venezuela, not the United States of America. It is a two-tiered system. It is a weaponization of our judicial system. And I want to go a little bit step further. I think, you know, had this stayed in the swamp, um, we may have not necessarily seen or opened our eyes as closely. But we learned yesterday that uh, Director Ray admitted the government has been working with financial institutions like Bank of America giving the FBI access to gun purchase records with no warrants, no subpoenas of innocent Americans. We learned that the FBI, you know, they sent 25 agents to the home of a Catholic dad who prayed outside an abortion center. And meanwhile, the FBI has specifically um, said that most of the violent cases involve attacks on pro-life targets, not on abortion clinics. The FBI has hundreds of thousands of inappropriate FISA warrants. That's surveillance of innocent Americans. And Director Ray wouldn't even say how many people were victims of it. Was it 200,000? Was it a million? That's still unclear. So the fact that this has completely come all the way down to men and women of America, I think that's where people are starting to open their eyes. And remember, that's what President Trump was actually all about. He was about restoring uh, the power to the American people, to the forgotten man and woman. So I'm not necessarily sure that this is our hippie moment, but I do think that this is our this is our revival to restore power to the American people away from the swamp. Okay, if this is our hippie moment and we're willing to dance naked on the hood of a Volkswagen at Woodstock listening to Bob Dylan, what <laughs> what will be done about it? I mean, in other words, I hear from average Americans every day. I'm formerly an office holder, currently a radio show host, I interact with, with what I call the America First voter. 
they are not just suspicious. They're sure that the federal government has a two-tiered system, but they don't believe anything will ever be done about it because nothing ever happens to those people. Encourage uh, the people who feel that way. Okay, so a couple things. Number one, we've seen Republicans completely come out of their shell, I would say, in the past six months. Look what's happening at Ways and Means. Look what's happening in Oversight and exposing the corruption that's taking place. Um, America First Works has called for the impeachment of Mayorkas due to the border crisis. Um, I think that that just goes to show you it's another three-letter agency, Department of Homeland Security. Um, We need to secure the border. Uh, defeat the drug cartels in human trafficking. And ultimately, that's going to happen when we elect a new president in 2025. But there also are other things that we can do immediately. Number one, Congress needs to continue to to push back on the FISA, um, the surveillance piece. Don't extend it. If Congress does extend it, create civil or criminal pen- penalties for omissions or misrepresentations within the application process. Um, you know, decentralize the power. Congress needs to push for less swamp and more power to the American people. Streamline it. Less regulation. You know, there are definitely different parts of FBI's counterintelligence and law enforcement authorities that can be divided to other agencies. So it's not all in one same building off of Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and finally, if Director Ray is saying he's not aware of parts of the investigations, call him back. Make sure he is held accountable. Um, we have to ensure that there's upward notifications on sensitive cases. We need to make sure that investigations concerning sensitive matters, um, that those that are going to be held politically and legally accountable, like Christopher Ray, are completely informed and that they are held accountable for the decisions made in that office. Honestly, I think at the end of the day, when 2024 and 2025 roll around, we will have a different look at um, what our our governing institutions can look like how can we make your job easier as executive director of america first works how can we support your efforts oh i appreciate that question number one um sign up americafirstworks.com we work not just at the federal level but in the states and so you know passing state legislation giving parents right their rights back their rightful rights back right um but and be a voice contact your congress member contact your senator Demand action. And sometimes people think, oh, they're not going to listen to me. But the more they hear um, from constituents, the more likely they are to act. But stay in touch with us, AmericaFirstWorks.com. Very well explained. Ashley, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Kind of an interesting perspective there. I mean, you know, I hear that a lot. I think that the majority of America Firsters, I mean, I consider myself, you know, I'm a Trump voter, but I'm an America First loyalist. I mean, I'm not a never Trumper. I'm not an always Trumper. Uh, Trump has been, I guess, the um, uh, the, the 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 symbolic, uh, the symbol. I mean, that, that you know, the symbol of America first and a political actor, figure, or character. But but my devotion is not to Trump the man, but rather America first, uh, the movement. And we were talking earlier about these different words and what they mean, and um, and and I guess the the definition of these words. My, my my interpretation of what these words mean is because of my America first leanings and biases. Um, you know, nationalism. I mean, I, I would imagine if you're a neocon, nationalism freaks you out. You know, if you're a globalist, nationalism freaks you out, and you would have a different interpretation. See, I, this goes back to the kind of the genuine theory of talk radio to me. I don't think I have a right to simply give you my opinion. 
I mean, I, I don't. I, if I'm a guy at a bar, I do. But somebody's entrusted in me uh, the, the ability to engage an audience. I, I don't have any idea. Well, we think we have somewhat of an idea of how large our audience is. Um, and, and with that comes a, a degree of accountability. I mean, when I give my opinion, it's got to be an opinion based in what? what? What I interpret to be true. Now, Jeff would have a different interpretation, right? I mean, we know that. And, and he's certainly entitled to that different interpretation. But, but I can't just wake up one morning and say, wow, it'd be fun to have that opinion. <laughs> you know, it'd be real fun to believe that. Now, you've you got to believe something in your bones, and you got to be willing to, to kind of put it out there and, and, and defend it and stand, you know, against criticism when it, comes, when it comes your way. And I just don't believe that white nationalism is racism. I think white supremacy is racism 101, but I think white nationalism gets complicated in a hurry. I mean, it really can truly, I think nationalism is different than patriotism because I think patriotism is the love of your country and nothing else. I think nationalism is the love of your country eh, at the expense of another. You know, if somebody's got to win this thing and somebody's got to lose this thing, I want America to win this thing. Uh, if there's a million jobs to be created, I want them all in America. I don't want any of them in Russia, any in China, any in Finland, any in, in uh, you know, uh, Norway. I want them all in, in America. That, that, to me, that's when patriotism kind of kind of morphs into, into nationalism. Why are you picking on Norway? Well, I mean, they're, I think we could whoop them if we had to. <laughs> let's, let's, let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, talking about nationalism and all this, we're, we're letting Democrats define language and tell us who we are. In fact, Democrats are wanting to come up with the conservatives. But as far as national debt goes, most of the debt is owned by the government itself and the United States citizens. About $28 trillion. Uh, about $28 trillion is, yeah. is, is intergovernment debt. And yeah, the and the U.S. public owns a lot of that. Yep, Social Security, Treasuries, all that good stuff. But you mentioned Jeff a little bit earlier. It was funny as hell yesterday. I love listening to him because he is a true progressive liberal. He goes to the extreme. You remember I called earlier, told you that we have to make laws to overcome their extremes, like abortion. They want abortion two minutes up till the birth. So we have to counter that by saying, okay, six weeks, and then you negotiate somewhere in the middle. But I noticed Jeff went to the Second Amendment right away. Typical progressive communist. Second Amendment. You want five-year-olds to own a gun? Well, no. Okay. You should have asked Jeff, well, you want five-year-olds to be able to transition from a boy and a girl and make a contract with a doctor without his parents knowing about it. So he can cut his penis off or cut his chest off or her chest off. So, you know, that's what they do. They pigeonhole you and then they come up with this whataboutism and then they say, well, you're for this. And nobody's for five-year-olds getting guns, but all the Democrats are for five-year-olds having transgender surgery without their parents knowing about it. And that that was what was hilarious to me. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Jeff. Pre I mean, thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. I don't want to insult Jeff yeah. or Joe, you know, by, by, by getting that mixed up there. I don't know what Jeff believes there. 
I mean, you know, every Democrat believes this. Every Republican, be- I don't, I don't believe that every Democrat believes that that a uh, you know a child should be allowed to enter into a medical contract to change their sex. Uh, I think the majority of Democrats believe that. I think nearly all liberals believe that. I think the majority of Democrats believe that, but I don't think every Democrat believes that. I don't think every Republican would oppose a five-year-old getting a gun. I mean, I think there's some some absolutist extremists out there in either party, and um, and and we we've allowed some of that to dominate the discourse. Um, you know, th- th- there's a great debate in America. I have this with a lot of Democrat friends of mine. You know, we need to get back to compromising. How do I compromise with someone? When, when, they're, when they can't tell me with a straight face the difference in a man and a woman. I mean, when, when, when the world they're a part of has so convinced them, indoctrinated them, that there's genuinely, sincerely a difference, or excuse me, no difference between a man and a woman. Forget all the science of chromosomes and XY and X. Forget all that. Where, where do you go to compromise from there? I mean, if Rev's sitting on one end of the table, I'm at the other. And we're trying to work out a, a diplomatic resolution to whatever issue we believe um, is our responsibility, our job of the body. So, so what if Rev says, hey, before we even go down this road of what's fair, what's unfair in uh, gender fluidity, I don't believe in, in chromosomal science. I don't believe uh, what, what we've established is fact in all these these many. Where, where do I go there? I mean, I, where do I meet Rev then? I mean, if, he, if that's his position. That there's no such thing as women and men. I mean, you get to choose what you are from moment to moment, day to day. And I don't think all Democrats believe that, but a lot do. I mean, a lot believe that. So, so where do you go to compromise when that's the starting point of the person you're trying to diplomatically resolve whatever issue is before? So, but I don't know. I mean, I get up and walk out because I just, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that frustrated. I don't want to be that angry at anybody. But that's what that's kind of where we are. What is the most extreme position the majority of Republicans hold? I mean, we're, we're referred to as extremists by the mainstream media. What, what is the most extreme position? Not 10% of Republicans. What is the most extreme position that the majority of Republicans hold uh, in politics today? 843-661937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. This is kind of a weird way to explain it, but I do think it's fairly accurate. We had Miss Hayek on the phone with us earlier, and you know, to to me, I grew up as a Republican, c- kind of the party of law and order. You know, the, you trust the CIA, you trust the FBI, you trust the American military, you trust the police, and the Republican Party is having its hippie moment. I mean, it's almost like if Woodstock were held today. It'd be full of Republicans. We're kind of the counterculturalist. And when the FBI director goes to Capitol Hill, he gets a little bit of reprieve from Democrats. And the aggressive questioning is from the Republicans. And it's a little bit of a, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's an evolution, but it's certainly a change from the historical nature of the grand old party to today's heavily America-influenced, kind of skeptical of government, two-tiered and justice system and all these other um, sorts of things. They had a tense hearing yesterday uh, with FBI Director Christopher Wray. I, I, you know, part of this was about the Hunter Biden laptop story. Uh, I, I guess the probe and eventual plea uh, that was offered. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Um, Ryan, I guess I'm a hippie. 
asking a journalist, a journalist from D.C., uh, what do we make of what happened yesterday, especially uh, the questioning around Hunter Biden at the laptop? All right, well, let me ask you something. So uh, back when Christopher Ray was appointed director of the FBI by President Trump, did you think that in a couple of years the, uh, a judiciary hearing would be like this? I, I never imagined that. And I'm telling you, if I'm a Republican running against Trump and I'm running, uh, you know, trying to engage a voting base that is skeptical of government, I would say, hey, who who appointed Christopher Ray FBI director? I mean, it's the guy that says, you know, he's the ultimate and consummate counter counter. No, I, I would have never in a million years saw this coming. But but I think you would agree with me. A, a lot of energy in the GOP right now is highly skeptical of what government says to be the truth. Well, absolutely, that's absolutely right. And you you could tell by the line of questions yesterday. You know, you had uh, Congressman Gates who asked uh, point blank, you know, is the Justice Department uh, defending the, the Biden administration or protecting the Biden family. And, and Ray came out and said, absolutely not. Uh, but then you also have, you know, the, the accusation that the FBI is biased against conservatives, which Ray also denied actually going out and saying that it's somewhat insane to assume that, considering the fact that he's, you know, a Republican who was appointed by former President Trump. Uh, but he did kind of have a, a, a an ally in the room that I don't think a lot of us saw coming, which was Ken Buck, who you know, could be considered to be a firebrand conservative. Uh, he was kind of going down that line asking Ray, you know, were you appointed by President Trump? Were you are, are you still a registered Republican because your Wikipedia page says you are? Uh, and then he went on to thank him for his service. So I think that was a little bit of a shocker there. But a lot of the other questions, I don't think they came as too much of a surprise and definitely got a little testy in there. And and he did insinuate. I mean, he didn't he didn't he didn't go on the record and say, but he did insinuate that the FBI has or is involved in the Hunter Biden laptop probe. Is that fair? Potentially. I, I think one thing that kind of stands out uh, about the investigations that are ongoing is, you know, that uh, Chairman Comer has talked about how there is a document that they reviewed and the FBI is clearly investigating somebody, but they just don't know who it is because a lot of that information was redacted from that uh, document they looked at. Well, you know, Ray was kind of pressed significantly yesterday if the DOJ is investigating the Biden family or President Biden himself. And he didn't, you know, confirm that, but he also didn't deny it either. So you have to think that that's going to fire up uh, the House Oversight Committee and its investigation moving forward. And Ryan, it didn't surprise anyone that the majority of answers he gave were non-answers. You know, I can't comment on that. I can't make any public commentary to that. That's why I've always found the FBI director appearing before a congressional committee a bit uneventful because they're investigating and they can't comment on investigations. Right. Yeah, I believe it's longstanding FBI uh, policy that they don't comment on on ongoing investigations or anything that might be pending, you know, just due to national security issues and also yeah, compromising certain information out there. But, yeah, Ray certainly stuck to that. And there was a lot of uh, questions that he just couldn't answer or he chose not to at all. Well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, sir. Absolutely. Have a good one. Um, These guys do a good job for us. I mean, in, in all honesty, they give a different take, a different perspective. Um, I, I'm comfortable enough in saying this. Um, we've created relationships outside of these interactions on the air. And these are real people that have real beliefs. Their job does not allow them to express themselves as freely as they will off the record. Right, Ray? Right. They, 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 are on, they appear on our show as a journalist from Fox News in this case. And if you remember... 
John Decker was a Fox News radio correspondent for years, and the, and he was one of the the folks that you know called in and did these type of they call them hits did those hits with the the local affiliates and then when he left fox that became uh, you know we, we expanded the relationship and it's it's really worked out for us been very happy with that no question about it and it's interesting i mean it's hard to build a friendship you know two minutes at a time uh once a week i mean ryan's with us a couple of minutes today a couple of minutes next wednesday a couple of minutes here but but you do create a i don't know a, a trust with one another you trust that he's going to provide a uh, an insight that you don't. He trusts that you're not going to ambush him, you know, and kind of put him on the spot and embarrass him. But but we we've developed and created some of these relationships off the air, and these are real people. I mean, they they, they obviously have personal opinions that that you know Fox doesn't pay them to give their personal opinions. Fox pays them to report on what they believe to be accurate. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Thanks for holding on, Jim. You're on the air. I appreciate it, Rev. Uh, good morning, Ken. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, I'm well. So uh, right before you went on break two Fridays ago, there was probably the largest, the biggest story of the year, and everybody's kind of glossed over it. And I predicted this because everybody was on break. And when I was talking on YouTube at Climate Viewer, I said, will anybody be talking about it come next Monday? And, of course, nobody, not Sean Hannity, none of the talking heads. The Biden administration said that they have a five-year plan to research blocking the sun to save us from global warming. And it, 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 the radio silence from Republicans and Democrats alike is probably the most outrageous. I, I am fit to be tied at this point over the Republicans' outrage over the new Green Deal, taking our pizza ovens away, taking gas stoves away. Oh, climate change, you're so upset. But how come, and I really, I called in while Drew was on because I'd love to get his opinion on this. And I have attended South Carolina GOP in Sumter and gave a one-and-a-half-hour presentation on this three years ago. Can you answer for me why the pushback to this climate change agenda is not that right now there's a climate clock ticking in the U.K. by King Charles and Sadiq Khan that has a six-year you know, countdown. There's a five-year solar radiation modification research program going on, and their solution for climate change, because you people won't listen, because you people won't stop polluting, that they want to spray chemicals in the sky to block out the sun. I cannot think of a single item that could unite both Republicans and Democrats alike more than they're going to take away your sunlight. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, Jim, I've consistently said, and I've got to be careful here, there are certain things about this debate that I understand. There are other technical aspects that I don't. I mean, I, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trained nor versed nor, nor prepared to give expert answers on, on what's happening to the oceans, what's happening to the sun, what's happening. I think it's the biggest con in the history of mankind. I mean, I, I got a buddy of mine in politics. He says, um, COVID's the greatest mistake America's ever made. I said, no, no, no. Buying into climate change is a far bigger mistake than COVID. I mean, th this is perpetual. 
I mean, th- th- this lasts forever. That this will impact our energy production, the way we live our lives forever. But I'm not, I'm not able nor capable. Is Jim still there? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I'm not able to argue intellectually what needs to be done, if anything. I, I you know, I understand. Um, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Here's here's where I land. If you can tell me what the optimal temperature of the planet Earth should be, then then let's start the debate from there. But unless you can tell me what the what what God intended, I mean, I'm a, I believe in Creator. I, I believe in you know God created the heavens and the earth. If you can tell me with with with, with a degree of certainty that that this should be the the average temperature of the planet Earth in July, in August, in September, then I'm willing to have that debate. But until we can establish that, I don't know how to have a legitimate debate, and I'm not technically nor scientifically prepared to argue, you know, um, the sunburst and the and, and the cloud cover. I believe the ocean's rising, Jim, but, but I think it's cyclical. But, but I'm basing that on my... Very limited understanding of the climate. Need to understand any of that. So I'll take I'll take that burden off your shoulders. You don't even need to understand what the ramifications of climate change are, what the temperature should be. You can very simply any you know I consider myself a southern redneck, and I you know I'll just put it that way. But but you've devoted yeah. a certain percentage of your. Uh, your being to better understand this. Is that fair? 15 years. Yes, sir. Fair enough. So what I would say to you is if you have the climate cultists who believe that the world is going to end and certain number of people are going to die, and then you have a group of scientists called geoengineers who say that because Mount Pinatubo erupted and it cooled the planet, we should mimic volcanoes and block out the sun. You have the Biden administration two Fridays ago releasing a federal plan that takes your tax dollars to study the deployment of blocking out the sun. I think God should control the weather, not man. I don't trust any man on this planet or woman or anything in between to control the global thermostat. These are the points that I think that and and I've done public, you know, audits on this, and 98% of people, both um, Republican and Democrat, agree when explained the technology that the idea that man control the weather, that can control the thermostat of the planet is a physical impossibility, and it should not happen. Yet, nobody, Republican nor Democrat, talking head or news or otherwise, one second, will even discuss this in public you running from and them I, jim <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we have an ambulance okay just take off right now just want to make sure you don't need to do, oh. I mean, if you're doing that do that we'll hang up but if, but if you're not Call running from, from a white bronco yeah, if you're not running from them then then we're good <laughs> I, I promise i've got a sled card on my pot on my pocket here <laughs> and a pistol on my head so i think that we're good okay. um <laughs> but the point the point is real simple that you know, for, for over 15 years now, they've been studying geoengineering as a solution to climate change. Hillary Clinton and, and John Podesta said before the Paris Climate Agreement that we know this target will fail. And the whole eventuality of it is we will do geoengineering. Biden, two Fridays ago, said 
we're going to study the you know side effects of this because this is probably the only solution we have to climate change. So at this point, it's becoming an, an eventuality that largely, almost 90%, the Democrat Party, the liberals, the technocrats, the globalists, and even the oil industries all agree that we should block sunlight to cool the planet because people are going to die. The problem with that is the top geoengineer on the planet, David Keith himself, said deployment of these chemicals, sulfur, aluminum, whatever, in the stratosphere will kill many tens of thousands of people. So I consider this the most – I'm so passionate about it because this will fundamentally change our entire world in an evening, and nobody is willing to study it, talk about it, fight against it. And I think it's a very strong counter-argument to the climate cultists for the Republican Party to say, let God control the weather, not man. I don't trust, you know, I don't trust in the governments at an all-time low. Why would you trust them to control where rain falls and what the temperature of the planet is? Well explained. Jim, thank you for your time. Thank you for the call. Um, I'm on the record. I mean, you know, I can't be any more clearly. Uh, I can't express myself any more clearly than I have. I have no idea. I mean, do, do, do I buy into climate change? Yes. Do, do I buy into man-made climate change? No. No. Absolutely. I think it's the greatest farce. That there's a bit of me that wonders if these masters of the universe don't gather in a dark room sometime, somewhere, and, and try to pull the ultimate con against the American people. And the ultimate con would be we can control the weather. We know what the weather needs. We know what the weather doesn't need. Um, now we can get into the debate about, you know, are you a secularist, an, an atheist? Are you a, a spiritual person? If you're a spiritual person, it's pretty easy to understand that there are certain things that I don't know, I'll never know, and I'm not in control of. If you believe man's top of the food chain, and, and you know, this place just happened, that then we probably have a, a more orderly responsibility to, you know, do whatever we need or think we need to do in regards to maintaining human life on this planet that just happened. You know, it is it's not God created. Um, I guess the spirituality in me and, and you know, my belief in God and a creator gives me some comfort and peace. But, but now Jim's right. You've got zealots, and they're motivated by a lot of things, money, power, um, I mean, they're, they're control. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that people do these things, but but I, I think it's unfair to ask me or, or Sean Hannity or or Jesse Waters or Tucker Carlson. I mean, we're pundits, but they're much more important uh, pundits than I am. But but we give opinions. Uh, it, it's unfair to us to ask us to sit behind a microphone and explain why this is bogus. I think it's bogus. I think it's the greatest con that the people in power have ever tried to perpetrate against people who aren't in power. I mean, just say this out loud. I know what the weather, I know what the climate is today exactly. I know what the climate will be in 50 or 100 years exactly. And I know what needs to be done to change the course of those climate changes. I mean, just kind of put that in your pipe and smoke it for a second. I, I, I don't know what the federal debt will be. Now, I don't know how, uh, you know, I don't know whether Russia will invade Latvia or not. I, I don't know whether we should spend another billion dollars on education in South Carolina. 
But I do know what the planet Earth's temperature will be 100 (laughs) years from now. And I do know what we need to stop that. Uh, catastrophe from ha- I mean that that's I mean that's beyond belief as far as I'm concerned and I'll tell you what's what was a little bit humorous to me how many smart people buy into that I understand a dumbass I mean I, I get that dumbasses are easily led or misled I mean I get you know you, you believe what's on that box you believe what's on that screen you believe what that person with that suit said but anybody with an IQ over a hundred that believes a single person who says with a straight face I know what the climate needs to, to 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 make sure it doesn't happen 100 200 3 here i mean you, you you're not i mean that, that that is an abuse of intelligence <laughs> god gave you more intelligence than he meant to and if god has ever made a mistake that's probably the one uh, mistake he's made 8436610937 take a break back in a few 8436610937 public service message if you're running from the law hang up right don't try to talk to us and run from the law if you're yeah. running from the law concentrate solely on running from the law let's go to the phone tim and pamplico good morning tim good morning dave good morning kent morning tim hey man so i guess the extinction event with the covid wasn't big enough then eh? you know we didn't get enough people killed off so now we're they're gonna monkey around with the suns where you're headed there you go plants crops things revolve around the seasons animals breed through the different seasons and different breeding times um crops again planted at certain times certain crops grow in the winter certain crops grow into summer certain crops have to have a certain amount of sunlight like corn which is probably used in most everything you eat in some way shape or form but so now they're going to have another mass extinction event. But instead of just killing off mankind, they're going to kill off animals, insects, you know, everything that the planet needs that their good Lord put here for us. And uh, Well, Tim, you, you've heard this. You've heard sunlight is the best disinfectant. Well, I mean, That's right. I mean the, the sun has, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the role it plays in, in our lives. I mean, it gets in our eyes, it, it sunburns us, but it does so much more than that it activates your vitamin d in your body to make good strong bones by the way did you know that back in the day the chinese were fighting the mongols the mongols ate a high protein diet and were able to travel and just move and move and move and move the chinese and their also their you know other people that the mongols were conquering ate mostly a cereal diet that rotted their teeth that, that you know is carbohydrate it beads you up then you drop down you know you have your sugar your sugar uh uh i call it the roller coaster you see and that's one of the ways the mongols conquered as much as they did because they were on protein rich diets they could travel they took very little water um and you see people just learn nothing from history people learn nothing from um just, I mean, facts, the facts that plants have to be planted, you know, crops have to be planted in the spring or summer, winter for, for whatever uh, uh, environment, uh, climate, uh, temperatures that they need to produce. These people we have up here should be, well, let me don't say that. But anyways, they should be just uh, categorized as absolute nuts. I cannot believe that they're even trying to... Um, 
deal with this. That that would be ab- the absolute craziness that I've ever seen. Like you said, I, I mean, now I've run out of words because <laughs> thank you, Tim. Damn, they're, they're just damn idiots, Ken. They, they, well, that, that's a good conclusive um, comment. Thank you for the, uh, the for the call there. Tim's a good Pamplico boy. Um, you notice we might have a similar accent there in the way we <laughs> don't mistake and roar for dumb. I mean, I, you know, I, I've said that for, and I, it, I'm not insulted by it. I mean, I, I promise I'm not. It doesn't bother me when people deduct 20 IQ points. You know, when I say y'all or ain't the way I say y'all or ain't, you start monkeying around with the sun and, 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 and God's ecosystem. I mean, you're playing God right. is what you're you doing. And, and you, you better be, I think God laughs. I mean, I, I don't know if God verbally laughs, but I, but I think God, you know, in his spiritual um, self or spiritual and profound, omnipotent and omnipresent way, I think he chuckles at people like John Kerry and Al Gore. Um, I'm not saying he um, takes me very seriously in, in what I say, but I think when people start talking about, you know, um, toying around with the notion of sunlight and, you know, God didn't get this just right, I believe in stewardship. I mean, I, I think we all have a responsibility to the planet to, to be good stewards. I mean, it doesn't belong to me. doesn't belong to Josh. doesn't belong to Dave. I'm here for 78.6 years, whatever, however many years the good Lord gives me, and then I'm gone. And, and, I, and I need to try and take care of this place that we inhabit and call, call home. Uh, not just the, the community, not just the state, not just the nation, but, but the globe. I think we all have a responsibility. And I've got no problem with research. I've got no problem with trying to better understand God's ecosystem and, and, and what role sunlight plays and what effect the moon has on gravity and the oceans. And I mean, I think that those are very interesting and worthy endeavors, but, but we've got human beings now saying that God got it wrong, that, that, that the sun's not exactly right. And, and the world's, you know, the earth's not exactly right. The temperature of the planet is not exactly cyclical in his, in his hands. We're doing things that that we need to undo or redo or do a different way to save God. I just think God laughs. Or he didn't get your gender right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's another <laughs> subject there. You know, you, you know, you should have been born a man. You're born. You're born a woman. But but I still believe. I, I think the, the the government and ah, power passionate people have always tried to influence the way we live our lives. I mean, that that's not unusual. People, uh, poor man, want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. And I guess the the Earth's climate would be the ultimate conquest. I mean, if I can convince, I mean, you know, I've convinced some people that I can control how much money you get in retirement, how much, what sort of quality health care you get. I mean, th- th- those are humanistic in nature. But but all of a sudden, I'm not good. Poor man want to be rich. Uh, okay, all of a sudden, I'm in control of your health care. I'm in control of your retirement income. I'm in control of where your kids go to school, what sort of education they get. Uh, rich man want to be king. Uh, you, you see where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. So, you know, the ultimate conquest would be to, to convince Americans that we control the planet. And certain select few, almost, I think John Kerry called them ET, uh, extraterrestrials. Yes. I mean, Kerry actually said, I'd love to find that speech. Kerry actually said at uh, Davos, it's it's kind of bizarre that a group of us would be in a room together in 2023 20, uh, deciding, you know, it, it's a little bit extraterrestrial, that we're the chosen ones that have to make these decisions 
to decide what the climate of the planet Earth is going to be 100 years from now. I mean, that, as my mom would famously say, how do you fix your mouth to say that? I don't know. But, but the uh, Carrie doesn't surprise me. Gore doesn't surprise me. They're power mongers. All they've ever wanted to do in their lives is tell you where to stand, what to say, and what to do. That's who they are. Please understand, John Kerry is being exactly who he is. Al Gore is exactly who he professes to be. He is a power monger. He wants control over more and more things, your lives included. The bizarre part of this is someone with an IQ over 100 believing what John Kerry and Al Gore are saying and believing the media narrative and what the cathedral has offered as proven science. I mean, Barack Obama says the science is settled. He has no more qualification than I do to say the science is settled. But once Obama says the science is settled, a third of the nation says we better, we better listen. I mean, we're all going to scorch. I think you can honest, I think that there is no doubt in my mind that the climate is changing. There is no doubt in my mind the ocean is rising. There is no doubt in my mind there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, that's kind of where I land. And, and we're basing our theory. I mean, everybody that says what they say, all you need to know is this. What is the optimal temperature of the planet Earth supposed to be? And how long have we kept records in relation to how long the Earth has been here? See, see we talk about debates, much needed and much warranted debates. When one of these climate experts come on meet the press, the first question Chuck Todd should ask is, good morning, Dr. Lomborg. Um, what should the temperature of the planet Earth be? Mm. Well, let me get back with you on that. Um, <laughs> Which is why he'd never ask Dr. Lomborg, before you go to these charts and graphs and, and you know, surveys and, 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 you know, all these things you've written and, and reported, i got another question for you. How long have we been keeping records on the weather? How long have we been keeping, how, how, much, how much data have we actually gathered on the climate? A uh, hundred years. How long has the earth been here? Eight billion, six billion. Um, so I would have my math ready. So you mean to tell me that we've kept record one-tenth of one percent, one one-hundredth of one percent at the time the earth exi has existed, and, and you think we know what happened three billion years ago? You see, I mean, th that's the debate that we must have. And you put those folks on defense. They can't defend that, guys. That's why we're not having the debates. That's the theory that I want all of us to understand. It's not even a theory. It's a reality. When you can't defend your argument, you're allowed not to argue. So, so if you had a legitimate journalist rationally reporting on climate change, those would be two of the first questions out of the box. What should the optimal temperature of the planet Earth be? And how long have we been keeping records uh, opposed to or in contrast to how old we think uh, the Earth is? Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, Dan, can you get uh, my buddy Kenny Hendricks there to set the guitar on fire somewhere, man? He's he's smoking here today. Uh, what was that? Uh, that was Monterey, and that wasn't Woodstock when Jimi Hendrix set the guitar on fire, so... I, I, like think he's, I think he hey, set Kim. several on fire. I think he set a lot of them on fire. Yeah, brother. Uh, hey, uh, my chauffeur can tell you the optimal temperature of the planet. So <laughs> just letting you know that. That's the old Jerry Cloward joke. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
you know, climate change in the industry, that's sad, isn't it? But to me, America first. We want America to do well. We want everybody to do well. And then when you think about, um, you were talking about Al Gore and these people, to me, they're global elitists, and they just really want to select few to do well in each country, and that makes them feel good. I guess that's that Davos, and I was thinking, you're talking about Pamplico, and us, you know, solar energy is a clothesline. Now, do you think Al Gore's got a clothesline? No, but that would be a good way to use the sun because the sun does get out stains and things and makes your clothes smell better. So it just shows the hypocrisy of these guys, and it's just, it, like I just said, it's an industry, and, and it's an industry based on fear. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Oh, it's based on fear and power. I mean, David says something about, you know, I want everybody to do good. I mean, I want to do well. I want everybody else to do well. Al Gore wants to do well. He wants everybody else to do as well as he decides they can do. But I I keep using the Springsteen reference, and I have no idea uh, at 21 when Bruce wrote that what he meant. Poor man want to be rich. Rich man want to be king. King ain't satisfied till he rules everything. And that's the mindset of the liberal politician, to be in control of things that adversely or positively affect your life. And right now they've decided government. Is the that's kind of the conduit, the vessel, the vehicle of which we can settle scores, promote an agenda, execute a plan. Let's go to the phone. Pat in Florence. Good morning, Pat. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Uh, climate. Well, I agree with you uh, when they say that they know that I, what the climate's going to be in uh, fifty years from now. Well, I got one thing. If uh, when you can tell me for sure how it's going to be tomorrow and be right about it then i might start listening but until then I, you know i mean you I, i'm i'm not listening that's about all i got to say about that uh dave if you um want some more uh motown it's about time for some for some motown don't you think uh sure. check out yeah check out got my whiskey by male waiters might like that one be a good little friday tune the lyrics or something like um I got my Google money, and I got my whiskey. But uh, y'all have a good day, good show. Thank you. Talk to you later. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And I still think we have the most legitimate stance on climate of anybody in the world. I don't know. I know, and I, and, I, and I accept there's a difference in climate and weather. I mean, of course there's a difference in climate and weather. And, of course, we need to research and investigate and explore and understand. But, but I, I just, I, I think the... The, the the bizarre nature of convincing people that you know enough about the Earth's climate today, and I'm talking about atmospheric climate, oceanic climate. I mean, they're, they're talking about everything. I mean, they're they're talking about you know a uh, hundred feet above the surface of the Earth, uh, two hundred feet above the the surface of the Earth, a hundred feet beneath beneath the ocean. I mean, you know, to believe that we've got that figured out is deeply disturbing. As far as I'm concerned, and, and look, I accept that I don't know. I also think that nobody else does. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Two Celsius in four hours are better than one Celsius in one hour. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, I kind of gain momentum as we progress through the uh, through the morning. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jeff and Florence. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, about the so so a guy calls in and talks about a study that the administration 
is putting forward and all of a sudden, you know, we want to see the clouds, kill the crops, reduce the population. Uh, do you believe that's what they intend to do? I don't have any idea what they intend to do. I mean, I, I, I don't pay much attention. When, when, they, when they talk about controlling sunlight, I, I just kind of move on to the next story because that's absurd to me. It, right. But, but I mean, we, we study all kinds of things like the spotted owls affecting the uh, a forest in Washington State, right? Yeah, but the spotted I mean, owl ain't the sun. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's a study. Let, let's be honest; they're not retrofitting planes with aerosol cans. But 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 the the um, whatever we decide <laughs> on the spotted owl uh, is okay with me. I mean, is it is it ex- nearly extinct? Is it to be uh, protected? I mean, starting monkeying around with the sun—that's uh, a different uh, whatever. I mean, I don't want to say it's a different animal because we're talking about animals <laughs> with the owl. That's just a different subject. Again, talking about a study, not 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 action. So, 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 Jeff, your argument is whatever the Democrats say, don't trust. I mean, they're just studying it. They'll never do this. I mean, they're just researching no, no, to find out a little more. Money. Yeah, they're putting money for a study. Uh, and that's what but, I'm saying. I mean, your argument is that, uh, you know, I mean, they say, you know, transgenderism is only one-tenth of one percent. So you don't have to pay any attention to that. I mean, they, only, you know, 0.5% of women have abortions in the third trimester. So don't pay any attention, any attention. It's where the party stands. It's a radical agenda, Jeff. And part of the radicalism is believing we can control the climate of the planet Earth. Well, so so you, you say it's crazy for us to think we can control that. Do you think that the effects we put in place and the changes – uh, affected, you know, we, we know we were destroying the ozone with some of the uh, chemicals we were releasing. We stopped doing that, and guess what happened? It replenished itself. Was that a good or a bad thing? And you think it stopped replenishing itself because we don't use right guard aerosol deodorant. You don't think the cyclical nature of the planet, the ecosystem, had anything to do with that? So, and I'm just, I'm just asking, you don't think scientists can look and see sedimentary, um, the oxygen level? You don't think that they can study the, the, the layers of, of sediment and, and tell what's going on in the atmosphere a million years ago? No. Yes, they can. No, I, I don't I, buy I, that. You, you mean to tell me that science is settled on what they research and find and translate to have been the case a million years ago. You're comfortable. You're comfortable defending the scientist that says because we drilled here and because we found this, we know what the temperature there was or what the what what the conditions were there a million years ago. Around the world, you can drill and you can find sediment levels that show global events. Do you believe that? Yeah, sure, I believe that. Okay. So, and you can't, they can tell the composition of what's going on. To some degree, that? to some degree, yes. Okay. And, and so. They can make analytical conclusions on their research. Right. But, but you're, you're so, asking me to trust everything. In other words, if they, if they analyze and they discern and they decide and, and, they, and they go to Congress and say, here's what we've determined, here's what you need to do. You're comfortable with that. Um, I, I, I'm real comfortable with us understanding the universe. I, look, I don't know how you grew up. But, but Jeff, we know, never will. With, we never will understand the universe. I mean, we should try to learn more and under and understand better, but, but we'll never understand 
all of God's secrets. I mean, that's where I stand. And, and you don't have to stand there, and I respect that. You know I do. But but I, I, that's yeah. kind of where I land. There, there are certain things about this universe and earth that we'll never know. But that doesn't mean you stop looking. And we're not stopping, are we? Okay. Uh, well, I'm just saying, like, you know, there seems to be a anti-science, like, like the collar, distrust. But it's well, not settled. Well, let me. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's a never-ending question. Hey, I'm sorry. We got to get out of here. We'll talk yeah. tomorrow. Enjoy your day.